You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations, you'll be smarter when you get there. What up? Welcome to Commute, the podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Jay. Leave me alone. I know. I sound, I sound a little off. I'm, I have a head cold. You sound fine. I didn't I have say a head, The show has to I could see you, judgmental eyes. But we are about to take you on a deep dive. That's Jay and I. On three topics that we find interesting, and we're betting that you might find them interesting, too. We can promise you this. You'll be smarter when you get there. On this edition of Commute, Groundhog's Day is coming up this week. And our favorite animal weather pet is gearing up to tell us when spring will arrive. So why again do we do this really weird thing and ask a groundhog about the weather? We'll ask the important legal question. Will my kid one day be able to sue me for posting his photo online without his consent? The video game creator who became Barry Bond. All of that on this edition of Commute. Let's get it. Jay, this is a big week, is it not? Uh, I guess. Groundhog's Day. It's a huge week. <laughs> Wednesday, this Wednesday, February the 2nd, 2022, Jay, we will celebrate everyone's favorite weird holiday, Groundhog's Day. Now, Jay, there is something you actually don't know about me, I believe, that you should. Okay, so I'm like an onion, another layer will come off of our friendship. My family, and I'm sure you could say the same of of most families, is full of interesting traditions. But no tradition is more (laughs) unique, perhaps, than my dad's, shout out Kevin Traub, his fascination with Groundhog's Day. Like, Jay, we celebrate it. You know, gun to my head right now, asking me, like, when is Groundhog's Day? I, don't, I think I'd be dead. I don't think I'd be able to tell you, like, what the day is <laughs> of Groundhog's Day. Like, you'd be like, you could even give me four choices. Like, is it in March or June or November? I'd be like, uh, I don't know. I even, I even told you in the intro it was Groundhog's Day, and you still didn't even remember. It, it had left that quickly. It's that forgettable. But I know. I, I know when it is because, like I said, growing up every year before school on Groundhog's Day, my dad would give us all Groundhog's Day gifts. So think of it like a little mini birthday party or something. And here's the thing. He still does it to this day. He sends gifts to our houses. So, Jay, obviously you did not and do not celebrate Groundhog's Day, but do you have any interesting, weird traditions? No, not really. Um, That is on brand. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, but I'm like really intrigued by this uh, celebrating Groundhog's Day thing. I think that's awesome. Maybe I need to adopt something like that. Every year since 1887, February the 2nd, has been a celebration of America's favorite rodent meteorologist, Punxsutawney Phil. In case you are unaware, and you are, according to tradition, if Phil comes out of his groundhog hole on February 2nd and sees his shadow scaring our little buddy back into his groundhog home, it means that we are in for six more weeks of winter weather. If Phil does not see his shadow, it means goodbye winter and hello to an early spring. Now, Groundhog Day, believe it or not, has its roots in an ancient Chinese tradition called Candlemas. During Candlemas, clergy would bless and distribute candles for winter, with the candles representing how long and cold the winter would be. 
A group of German citizens who would soon settle in America expanded on the idea by selecting an animal instead of a candle to help predict the weather. So what started as a candle predictor became a hedgehog predictor, which then turned into a groundhog predictor due to the incredible amount of groundhogs in the area that the Germans had settled, Pennsylvania. Jay, are you following me so far? I am, and uh, I just did not realize it went back this far. (laughs) It's deep. The legend runs deep. So all of this led to February 2nd, 1887 when a Pennsylvania newspaper editor belonging to a group of groundhog hunters, yes, they had very weird hobbies in the late 1800s, named the Punxsutawney Groundhog Club, declared that the Punxsutawney breed of groundhog, affectionately known as Phil, was the only true American weather forecasting animal. In 1993, Bill Murray starred in the critically acclaimed film Groundhog's Day, in which he was forced to repeat the same day over and over and over and over again. And today, huge crowds, as in tens of thousands of people, converge on a place called Gobbler's Knob every year in Pennsylvania to witness Phil's prediction. So Jay, you may be asking yourself, just how accurate is our little weather reporter Phil? Well, according to the group Live Science, as of 2021, Phil has predicted more winter 103 times and an early spring just 19. And comparing that to actual weather records from the Stormfax Almanac, Phil's accuracy rating is a paltry 39%. But despite being really bad at his job, Phil remains immensely popular. Outside of the crowds that will gather in just a few days in Pennsylvania, you can actually book Phil on Cameo, the website that allows you to pay celebrities for personalized videos. A shout out from Phil J, and yes, it is the actual Phil, will cost you about $115. Now, Phil himself obviously can't speak. He's a groundhog. So his handlers, a group of top hat wearing men that care for Phil all year long, known as the Inner Circle, complete with names like Rainmaker, Thunder Conductor, and Big Chill, will relay Phil's message to you. $115 to me seems a little steep. I mean, can't you get like really, really famous people for like $100 or something? You know so much more about Cameo than, than I do. I do. I've, I've purchased a few. But I would argue, is there really anything more famous than Phil? <laughs> it would. The, the Groundhog's Day Groundhog. It would be like really shocking to see. So, Dave, we are part of a generation, and really a lot of people are, in which we have become parents during a time that we are very interconnected online. And that brings certain challenges, like posting information about your kids, for example. Yes, and we have actually explored this concept a little bit just a couple episodes ago. Uh, Episode 45, The Most Popular and Wealthy Kid in America, talks about a kid named Ryan Kaji, whose parents really figured out a way to become extremely rich by just using his cuteness on YouTube, him literally opening presents for other kids to watch. Yeah, and I, I know growing up in this world of interconnectedness and like sort of talking to people who are in a similar stage of life as you and I, I've noticed that online interconnectedness, it's kind of like a double-edged sword for a lot of young parents. Posting about your kids, it can be positive and it can lead to you sharing your joy with others. 
but sometimes parents can also feel stressed out by it. Like if their version of reality isn't necessarily being mirrored online, it can bring feelings of anxiety instead of feelings of connectedness that it should bring. Now, there is still a choice for us at the end of the day on how much of our lives we want to share online. We can share a lot or we can share a little or try to find a balance somewhere in the middle. But for many children born into today's world, they don't really get that option. From the time they're born, they exist online in photos or videos, but even more so, key details of their life may appear in blogs or in captions. In fact, Dave, 80% of children are said to have an online presence by the age of two, and the average parent shares almost 1,500 images of their child online before their fifth birthday. When you think about it, all this information being shared about children online is sort of already constructing digital profiles for those specific children that they had no say in. In fact, Dave, studies estimate that by the year 2030, nearly two-thirds of all identity fraud cases affecting today's children will have resulted from details shared online by their parents. Now, people who study this sort of thing have given it a name. They call it sharenting, which by definition is exposing children to this larger digital world without their consent. Parents don't really consider the potential long-term effects here. I like that. I mean, I, I, not the act of doing it. I just I like a, the name. It's That's a catchy. very catchy name. Yeah. Sherrington. <laughs> like the guy, the researcher who thought it up was like, I got it. Uh, like in the in the <laughs> room one day and they were all like, oh my hey, gosh. We're, get in here. <laughs> Listen to what Dan thought of. And, you know, the issues with sharing are really reflective of the more like broad issues with social media that just face adults. It's that as we plug more of our information into this thing, we make a bargain. We connect more online, but we give our personal information, our likes, our fears, our insecurities, and our thoughts to a machine that uses an algorithm that can be used to sell us things or surveil us or influence us. And we as adults, like we know this happens to us. We know that social media exists to sell us things. We've made that trade-off already. But for a child, they will never really get that opportunity to decide if they want in on that system. Now, on a deeper level, and you kind of mentioned this at the top, Dave, there's a whole subset of children who are the focal point of the content that their parents create online. Parents who use their children to gain an audience online and then advertise parenting products on Instagram or YouTube have entered like another stage of all this. As kids who are the focal points of their parents' social media grow and mature, these versions of them like crying or doing something embarrassing in a video, those will remain on the internet forever. So legally speaking, Dave, the system hasn't even begun to catch up to the times. In France, strict privacy laws have been enacted that carry a potential punishment of up to a year in prison and a fine equivalent to 50,000 US dollars for anyone that is convicted of publishing and distributing images of another person without their consent. And on the surface, there's nothing really in the law preventing someone from suing their parents for oversharing, even if no one in France has really done that yet. So could it happen in the U.S.? Well, probably not. Mark Bartholomew, an expert on cyber law at the University of Buffalo, spoke to the Huffington Post on the issue and pointed out that in the U.S. we have the parent-child immunity doctrine, which is the legal notion that a child can't bring legal action against his or her parents 
for torts or civil wrongs parents inflict while the child is a minor. Bartholomew also told the Huffington Post that at this moment, there really is no precedent for legal action against a parent oversharing online. Given how commonplace it is for parents to share online, it would be a steep uphill battle for someone to make the legal claim that sharing caused emotional distress or defamation and then win a court case on it. But the waters are still sort of uncharted here, and legal scholars admit that it is certainly possible that someone in the future who had a parent who overshared every aspect of their life could attempt to blaze a legal trail forward on the issue if they felt like harm had been done to them because of it. So, big picture here, will your kids be able to sue you one day for this? And the answer is maybe, but that really isn't the point. The point is, if you're a parent, that you don't make this about you, just make it about them. Try to ask yourself your motivations behind posting about your kids. Try to be more aware of how certain images or videos could affect your child in the future. And if the child's old enough to make the decision, ask for their consent when posting images of them online. I'm probably on some kind of list now because while you were talking, I googled how to make money off of your kid online. And it, it actually didn't bring up results for that, though. It brought up results for online ways to make money as a kid, which is much more wholesome. So I'll share a few of those. There's there's like some agent at the FBI, and he's like, he's like, Trob just looked up. Uh, he, we got a red flag. We got a hit on Trob. Yeah, this might be my last episode. I might have to do the next one from jail. Uh, a couple, uh, just a couple ways that you could make money as a kid. Make crafts uh, is what this suggests, uh, or you could sell your old stuff online. So. Uh, Good stuff there. And that's it from this song. <laughs> Jay, when I was a kid, my buddy and I were obsessed with all things sports. We'd play outside all day, and then we'd play sports-themed video games all night. One of our favorite things to do, actually, <laughs> super weird, was to create an entire Major League Baseball team with people that we knew from around our hometown. Okay, so like teachers, other kids around town, people we thought were <laughs> funny. Now, this, this did backfire every once in a while because uh, one instance I went to stay the night at somebody else's house for a sleepover. I brought my version of the game, and when we loaded it and it popped up, the created version of him popped up, and he was short and fat, which he was actually not short and fat. So I had to talk my way out of that one. <laughs> So basically, I've been dodging, uh, dodging <laughs> grenades my entire life. But, but Jay, it was, it was a fun, wacky thing, but we loved sports games. How about you? Did you like to play sports-themed video games as a kid? Yeah, I did. I mean, I didn't have a lot. Like I, I only had a handful of them, but I do remember having the NCAA game for my GameCube, and I played that a lot. Like I did the whole like make-a-team thing and all that, and I'm not the guy who like buys it every year, yeah, but yeah. I hung on to that copy for a while. Yeah, well, well, there were two players back in the day, one basketball and one baseball, that were not in video games. At least, not really. One NBA player and one Major League Baseball player. The NBA player was the legendary Michael Jordan. Because of Jordan's unique status as the most famous athlete in the world, he did not grant his image and likeness rights to video game companies. A Jordan-esque player was created, though, to replace Michael Jordan on the Bulls. He had the same skill set, a pretty similar look, but a very different name. Instead of first name Michael, last name Jordan, this player was named first name roster, last name player. 
<laughs> they couldn't have, they couldn't have named him like Jordan Michael no, or something. Was, that was the extent of the originality. Roster player. The baseball side, though, my friend, was a lot more interesting, and that's where we will spend our time today. The player in question was legendary home run king and alleged steroid user, San Francisco giant slugger Barry Bonds. But unlike Michael Jordan, Bonds wasn't named roster player. Bonds, Jay, was named John Dowd. And Jay, John Dowd is a real person. So who is John Dowd and how did he become a video game playable character legend? Well, the year was 2003, and EA Sports was about to release a new version of their very popular game, MVP Baseball. The problem was they were about to release an MVP Baseball game without the reigning MVP in it. League MVP Barry Bonds had just announced he would pursue licensing opportunities similar to Jordan on his own, and so he did not allow games to use his name, image, or likeness. The EA Sports executives kind of freaked out. They met to discuss what they called the Bond problem. How could a Major League Baseball game work if it didn't feature the game's best player? The solution they came up with sounded insane at first, but soon became their actual plan. EA would follow the Michael Jordan roster player model and create a fake Barry Bonds. But this fake player, unlike roster player, would only resemble Bonds in talent. The fake Bonds would have all the dominant characteristics of the real Barry Bonds, but none of the look. The fake Bonds would be white. Bonds was black. He'd bat from the right side of the plate. Bonds hit from the left. But most of all, he'd have an actual name. John Dowd. We were kind of discussing what to do, and one of my bosses said, well, we'll just create a fake Bonds and give him someone else's name said John Dowd, a 31-year-old assistant (laughs) game producer at the time, to MLB.com. We threw around some ideas, and then my boss looked at me and said, hey, we'll just give him your name. And Jay, this specific game, MVP Baseball 2005, ended up being one of the best-selling, most highly rated baseball games of all time. The game's soundtrack is still popular today. It exists as a Spotify playlist. Its gameplay revolutionized the way baseball games were created after, and it became a cult classic. A lot of this, in part, because of the game's best player, the powerful San Francisco Giants slugger, John Dowd. A typical stat line from Dowd was something like this. Five for six, four home runs, ten RBIs. Jay, he wasn't just good, he was legendarily good. But despite all of this success, very few people knew that John Dowd was a real guy. In fact, Dowd, who worked at EA Sports until 2006, was part of the team that created the player database. So basically, John Dowd created John Dowd. Dowd's legendary character in the game is such a cult hero, in fact, he's been recognized in real life before. I was on vacation in Europe in 2016, Dowd told MLB.com. I was staying at a hostel in Madrid, and, you know, there's people from various places there, and there are these two guys from New York. They were probably 10 or 12 years younger than me. We started talking about what we do, and I told them I used to work at EA Sports. They said, oh, what games did you work on? And I said, the baseball MVP games. And they said, oh, we used to play those all the time. What did you do? And I said, well, if you played with the Giants at all, you might even know my name. The guys went nuts. Their eyes bugged out, and they said, you're John Dowd? (laughs) 
<laughs> so Jay, while Dowd, much like roster player, exists only in an aging video game, the legend lives on with those of us who played the game, including actual Major League Baseball players. Trevor Williams, a current pitcher for the New York Mets, even gave Dowd a shout-out on Twitter in 2018 after pitching against the Giants. It was an honor to pitch on the day that Barry Bonds got his number retired, wrote Williams. Maybe next year I can pitch on the night that John Dowd gets his number retired. Yeah, so this reminds me of the New England Patriots coach Bill Belichick. He is actually not in Madden, the video game Madden. And um, the guy that they replaced him with does not look anything like him. And uh, it's because he's, I guess, not in the NFL Coaches Association. So, like, they're the ones who kind of negotiate this whole thing to get these people's image and likeness into Madden. And so he was asked about it in 2015. I just looked it up. And if you know Bill Belichick, he's like the stereotypical, like, grumpy old man. And so the reporter said, since you were in the coach's picture, are you going to be in the Madden game? And Bill Belichick said, what Madden game? Okay, he knows what Madden is. <laughs> then they say, John Madden has this video game, and Bill Belichick cuts him off and says, I have no idea. You should ask John about that. Like, okay. <laughs> but um, this is what I know you'll love, Dave, uh, are the names of the replacement coach over the years. So it started off as just New England coach was the name. Then they changed his name to Chad Masters. <laughs> <laughs> then Josh Moore... And more recently, it's been Griffin Murphy. <laughs> I, think, I think I really prefer Chad Matt. <laughs> and that's it. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review Commute on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or on your favorite podcast platform. Check us out. We're on social as well. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And you can always say what up at our website, commutethepodcast.com. Music for Commute is provided by my main man, Jason Samuels. For Jay Sisson, I'm Dave Traub. We'll see you next week.